Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are prepared to study the Word this evening and for God the Holy Spirit to teach us uh, what we need to learn and apply in our own lives. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this time together to study your word, to be challenged by what your word has to say, to see how these principles apply to our lives, that we may be changed as we continue to grow and advance in our spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we study this evening that we'll be able to keep all those distractions aside, we'll be able to focus and concentrate and study your word, and that because we know that it is your word that is in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, that's the primary change agent in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time we were looking at the last part, the last three verses in the prelude or the salutation part of the introduction to Romans. And we were looking at the fifth verse, just to go back and review and reiterate a couple of points. Through him, referring to Jesus Christ, We have received, Paul says, grace and apostleship. Grace, in this context, relates to salvation. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And apostleship. And that apostleship refers to that one apostleship that was related to the those who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to carry out what is usually referred to as the Great Commission. And this is what helps us to understand the phrase for obedience to the faith. Obedience to the faith is a phrase that refers to obedience with relationship to faith because believing in Christ as Savior is also a response to a command. So it is an obedience to that command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Faith is also a response to the various other mandates and prohibitions that we find uh, in the Scriptures. But the idea of apostleship for obedience to the faith, or obedience of the faith, among all the nations for his name, 
uh, specifically relates back to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which gives the primary directive, the primary mission for the church in the church age. Now, I want to make a distinction here because what you often hear, what I've often heard when I hear this passage taught is that this is directed not only to the individual apostles, but this is given to individual believers. But I don't think that's true. It is not the job of every believer to make disciples. Uh, it's not the job of every believer to uh, make disciples by means of baptism or by means of teaching them to observe all things. Not every believer has a gift of evangelism. Not every believer has the gift of pastor-teacher. So the mandate here is in, with reference to the mission of the church as a whole. The church, looking at the church universal, that is everyone during the church age who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when they are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and entered into the body of Christ, at the instant of salvation, one of the Holy Spirit's ministries in the life of every believer is to give the believer a spiritual gift or sometimes more than one spiritual gift. And we get these spiritual gifts in different proportions and different measures. And the role that each individual plays within the body of Christ is all directed, they're, they're complementary roles. Some have the gift of administration, some have the gift of mercy, some have the gift of teaching, some have the gift of helps, some have the gift of pastor-teacher. All of these gifts work together in a complementary role so that the entire body of Christ is to be focused on this mission of making disciples by baptism and by teaching. And as I pointed out last time, the phrase by baptism is a reference to uh, entry into the Christian life, which is related to evangelism, and then teaching is related to spiritual growth. So you have spiritual birth related to baptism, and you have spiritual growth related to teaching. They are two separate events. They are, they are related in that they both have an organic unity in the work of Christ on the cross, but they are distinct in that being born again or regenerate does not necessitate spiritual growth. It doesn't make spiritual growth inevitable. Now, that's the big heresy that we see in what is often referred to as lordship salvation. Lordship salvation is... Uh, comes out of a Reformed or Calvinistic theology and is usually related to what is uh, referred to as the P in tulip. Always remember that Calvinism is sort of summarized by five points, and the acronym is TULIP. And the TULIP stands for the five points of Calvinism, total inability, which means you can't even have positive volition that God would respond to, total inability, unconditional election, God just chooses who will be saved and who won't be saved. It has nothing to do with positive volition because that is uh, not, uh, because of total inability, you, you can't even have positive volition unless you're elect. So unconditional election and then limited atonement, the view that Christ died only for the elect, and then irresistible grace, that God the Holy Spirit irresistibly moves only on the elect. And then finally, 
the P for perseverance, that those who are truly or genuinely saved will grow. They will inevitably grow. They will inevitably produce fruit. And there's a lot of confusion over that. And this year when we have the Chafer Conference in March, and the focus this, focus this year is going to be on uh, sanctification, the aspect of spiritual growth or experiential, sometimes referred to as progressive sanctification, that this is, uh, there's a distinction that is unique to dispensationalism. There's a lot of debate over that, but that's one of the things we want to focus on is answering that question. Is there a theology of the spiritual life that is, un- that can be demonstrated to be unique and distinct for the Christian life? And I think there can, and I think what it comes, everybody misses this just about, but I think what it comes out of is the role of God the Holy Spirit that is unique and distinct for this church age. And in Reformed theology, they just have a lot of problems understanding the ministries of God the Holy Spirit. I pointed out on Tuesday night that historically in Reformed theology, from the time of the Reformation, the influence of John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Henri Bullinger, Zwingli and Bullinger were a part of the German-Swiss Reformation, uh, Calvin, and um, uh, was part of the French-Swiss uh, Reformation. And that l- had a very strong influence on the Huguenots in France, on the Dutch Reformed Church. They didn't have a separation of church and state, so you had the Dutch Reformed Church. You had the Scottish Presbyterian Church. You had in... Uh, uh, in England, you had the influence uh, among the uh, in the Anglican Church, uh, very strong influence because after the initial period of the Reformation under Henry VIII, when Henry died, uh, his son Edward became king. He died within a couple of years. He was Protestant, but he was replaced by his sister Mary Tudor, who was known as Bloody Mary, and she was called Bloody Mary because she was Roman Catholic and she tried to reverse the Protestant the course of the Protestant Reformation in England, and so she uh, instituted a persecution on all of those who had identified themselves as Protestants. So you had uh, the, the, the leaders in the Anglican Church that had come to a Protestant belief in justification by faith alone uh, and were contrary to the Roman Catholic Church did one of two things. They either went into hiding, and many of them left England and went to Geneva in Switzerland, where they were trained by John Calvin and others in the School of Theology, uh, basically a seminary there in uh, Geneva. And then after Mary uh, died, they came back and formed the nucleus of the, of the leadership in the Anglican Church under, uh, under Queen Elizabeth. Those who didn't leave either went into hiding in England or many of them were uh, arrested, they were tortured, they were martyred. Uh, many of them were martyred, burned on, at the stake on the fields of Smithfield, and that is why uh, Mary was called Bloody Mary. And so the, um, uh, the, the, that, that influence of Calvinism goes down through the Anglican Church. It affects the Puritans in the next century and the pilgrims who were separatist Baptists, the pilgrims were those who came over on the Mayflower, and then they were followed by uh, many of the uh, Puritans who were uh, reacting to the 
uh, compromises that were made in the Anglican Church under Elizabeth and later under under King James I. And so you had this huge migration of English Puritans uh, to Massachusetts, Connecticut, up in that area. Uh, between about 1620 and 1640, you had uh, 40 to 50,000 uh, Puritans immigrated from England to Massachusetts, which formed the solid core of, uh, of believers and Christians there in, in New England. But the theology that they had was a strong Calvinistic theology. So all the uh, various American denominations that come out of that would be your, congreg- your traditional congregational church. Today they're liberal, but in, originally they were uh, Calvinistic. You're, you had your congregational church, you had your Presbyterian church, and you had uh, a lot of Baptist churches. In England at that time, a Baptist church was primarily Calvinistic, uh, what we might even call hyper-Calvinistic in their theology. And so all of these different groups all held to what is known as the perseverance of the saints in the sense that if you're a genuine believer, then that's going to be manifested by your fruit. And if you're a genuine believer... Somehow in regeneration, the, the power of the sin nature is limited. You're just not going to be able to sin and live like an unbeliever uh, if you're truly saved. And so this set up a sort of a standard of fruit inspect, inspection for believers. How do you know if you're saved? By looking at the fruit in your life. Well, how do you quantify that? How, how do you evaluate that? Well, we, re- we really can't. But it turned people into fruit inspectors, and the focal point of their faith and their hope was no longer in the promise of God. It's in the uh, whether or not they have the right kind of fruit. And within the Reformed view of sanctification, it's basically uh, basically ignores the Holy Spirit, and the way you grow as a Christian is basically to go and sin no more. And it's sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps sort of of a spiritual life. Whereas with the uh, rise of dispensational theology and an understanding of the distinct role of the Holy Spirit in the, um, in the church age, with an emphasis on the distinction that's made by the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then the indwelling of the, of the Holy Spirit as a true, genuine indwelling, of God the Holy Spirit within the individual believer as opposed to uh, some Reformed views. There's a lot of different Reformed views that are really all over the page, but there's some of them who identify the indwelling of the Spirit with regeneration. It's just another way to talk about it. And uh, so you have Adam and Abraham and David. They're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. See, so that's where things get all fuzzy. So... Um, you get into these kinds of, of, of issues, and what we have to, all of this goes back to understanding the basic mission of the church in relationship to these spiritual gifts. This is something that's unique to this age because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, and the ministries of the Holy Spirit related to giving these gifts to every single uh, individual believer so that they can each contribute something within the whole body of Christ towards moving towards the goal of fulfilling uh, the mission statement of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So you may not have the gift of administration, 
but you have the gift of mercy. So you can use that to identify people in the congregation who are, uh, who are sick, who are in the hospital, who are at home, uh, perhaps shut-ins, and you can have some sort of ministry in relationship to them. You may not have a gift or an ability to be a teacher, but maybe you have the ability to be a good administrator, and so you can serve in uh, various different roles. You could be a deacon. You can be involved in some way in helping with uh, prep school or things of that nature. Uh, you might not have the gift of pastor, teacher, or evangelist, but you might have the gift of giving. And that is the role that God has given to you. And so you can uh, play a major role in the financial support of a local church or missionaries and making sure that those logistical needs are, are taken care of. So everybody plays a role on the team, and the goal of the team is to uh, make disciples of all the nations by baptizing and by teaching them to observe all things that uh, we have been commanded. And even though that emphasis is on obedience, that doesn't make it legalism. Legalism says obedience is the basis for God's blessing. But what we're talking about is we walk by faith. Faith focuses on the promises and the mandates and the principles of Scripture. And so faith looks at those promises, looks at those mandates, looks at those prohibitions, and says, I believe that's true, so I'm going to act this way, or I'm not going to act this way. I'm going to think this way. I'm not going to think that way. And that is uh, how you begin to implement all of the principles in Scripture, and began to grow. And this is exactly what was happening in the church in Rome. Now, I'm going to ask a question a little later on as we get into this because it's, it's very interesting to see uh, what Paul says about this church when we get into, into verse, verse 8. So, again, I pointed out from just one other passage in Romans 10, 16, and 17, where Paul says, in reference to the gospel, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So here again you have obedience linked with believing the gospel. So there is a, an, a clearly a recognition in Scripture that believing the gospel is a command to all human beings, and those who obey the command believe it's non-meritorious, it's not works, but it is, uh, it is faith, and it's based on hearing the word of God. So that, verse 7, concluded the salutation opening part of the, uh, of the epistle. And then we get into the second part of the, of, the, uh, of the prelude here, where Paul begins by saying, first, now when there's a first, what do you expect? Yeah, but we don't see a second, do we? Typical of Paul to kind of get a little bit sidetracked and run down a rabbit trail. And this is really a good way of translating this in the, in the Greek because there's a little particle here in the Greek that is usually untranslated, but a native Greek word, reader would see that particle and expect something to follow. That there would be, if you've got a one, you're going to get a two or a three, and that really doesn't, uh, doesn't develop here. But Paul, I think what Paul is really focusing on here is in terms of his priority. His primary mission, as we talked about last time, had to do with the 
proclamation of the gospel in terms of the obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. Now when we get into verse 8, he is focusing on on prayer and the priority of prayer for those congregations that Paul was associated with. And so let's just read the first 12 uh, verse, down to verse 12, starting verse 8 down to verse 12, to pick up the context. I don't think we'll get beyond uh, verse 12 this evening. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing... I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now that sounds like he's talking about spiritual gifts there, and he's really not. It's a, it's, it's a, there's a slight difference there that's important to understand. That I may impart, impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, what we see here are a couple of ideas here, and one sentence is covered in verses 8 through 10, which focuses on his gratitude to God for the way these believers in Rome have responded to the doctrine that they have learned and the impact that that is happening, having not just in terms of their own personal private walk with God, but in terms of the impact that it's having in the uh, culture and city of Rome itself. But beyond Rome, Paul says uh, their reputation is being proclaimed Throughout the whole world, in other words, and that would refer mostly to the Roman Empire. The second thing that he focuses on in verses uh, 11 and 12 are on the fact that he st- desires to come to them in order to provide uh, from his spiritual gift teaching that will edify them and that will uh, move them forward in spiritual growth. So the first thing that we see in his very first sentence here, first thing, is his gratitude. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for y'all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And we find as we compare Paul's different epistles that Paul puts this emphasis on gratitude in prayer. Now, when we think about prayer, there are different elements that go into any prayer. And I've used the acronym before of ACTS, A-C-T-S, that prayer includes adoration, which is a focus on God, on who he is and what he has done. Uh, Adoration focuses on a praise for God for his works in our life, for all that he has given us, all that he's provided for us, and that focuses upon him. It also includes the C, which is confession. Confession has to do with admitting our sin to him so that we are cleansed of sin and are in fellowship, and our prayers then can be efficacious. When we're out of fellowship, they cannot be efficacious. As the psalmist said, uh, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's in Psalm 66, 18. And then a third area of prayer is thanksgiving. 
And this is very important. In eight of Paul's 13 epistles, he begins with an expression of gratitude to God for the impact that the Word of God is having on these individual believers in these congregations. Uh, the other letters were usually letters where he was a little uh, more involved in reprimand to that congregation, and so he, in those other epistles, he seems to move past an opening reference to prayer and directly to the heart of the matter, whatever his concern was in, in those epistles. But in uh, several of them, uh, he focuses our attention on gratitude. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.4, Ephesians 1.16, Philippians 1.3, Colossians 1.3, 1 Thessalonians 1.2, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, 2 Timothy 1.3, Philemon 4. If you just look at the beginning of, of several of these epistles, he focuses on a gratitude for the way that the, the doctrine is having an impact in the life of these individuals. So gratitude is very uh, important. And gratitude, we must understand, gratitude is a reflection of and is a barometer of our own grace orientation. Now, grace orientation means that we, our thinking is aligned to grace. We understand grace. We understand our relationship with God is based on grace. We understand our relationship to other people should be based on grace. Grace orientation means that we're not operating on a quid pro quo approach to God. That is, I'll do this and then God will bless me. It is based on understanding that everything is provided for us as believers uh, because of the work of Christ on the cross. And therefore, we're motivated by gratitude that God has done everything for us rather than being motivated by trying to get more uh, from God. It's interesting that in English, both our English word gratitude and our word for grace come from the same Latin roots. And so they both emphasize, uh, one emphasizes undeserved kindness or unmerited favor, and the other word gratitude indicates our response, our thankfulness to that unmerited, something done that we do not deserve. So grace orientation means that we come to understand that as we live our spiritual life, we're to live it in a way where we recognize God's already provided everything for us. We're not trying to get more for God, motivate God. We're not trying to um, sort of create a, a, a situation where we, we motivate or convince God or bargain with God to do certain things in our life. He's already provided for us, and therefore our relationship with him is not based on meritorious works. The application of that is that in, then in terms of our relationship with other people, we treat them in grace and not on the basis of who they are or what they've done. We learn to forgive them. We learn to extend grace and kindness to them even though they don't, uh, they don't deserve it. And we focus on uh, living our life on the basis of humility which is the underlying mentality of grace orientation. Grace orientation recognizes that I don't do anything, I can't do anything. That no matter how smart I am, no matter how talented I am, no matter how gifted I am, all of that just comes from God. I have nothing to offer God whatsoever. And therefore, I am only to serve him. It's an attitude of genuine humility 
that I am under his authority and he's given me everything and it doesn't, whatever I have has nothing to do with anything other than God's plan and purpose for my life. And I really don't have any, anything to say about his plan and purpose for my life. So that the underlying attitude of grace orientation is humility and we realize that our life is not about us. No matter how much we think it's all about me, no matter how much our emotions and our circumstances get us to focus on me and what I want and my life and, and I should achieve this or I should achieve that or I should do this or why don't I have that, uh, that's just to focus on, on self as opposed to God. That we realize, we have to realize in grace orientation that life is not about us but it's about God's plan, and it's about serving him. So it's, it's not about me, it's about God. It's not about what I want, it's what God wants and what God has given me in order to fulfill his plan for my life. The opposite of humility, of course, is arrogance. And arrogance is something that is totally self-centered. And we only have those two options. We're either going to be God-centered or we're going to be self-centered. Uh, one or the other. And when we're God-centered, we're going to be in fellowship. It's going to be a consequence of being in fellowship and spiritual growth. And when we shift back to uh, arrogance, then it's all about me again. And, of course, that means that we're out of fellowship and the sin nature is under control. So in arrogance, we are operating on self-absorption. It's all about me. And we all learn how to be self-absorbed within about 72 hours of being born. And as soon as we cry and get somebody's attention, and as soon as a few other things happen, we immediately discover that we can start manipulating people. And depending on uh, your genetics and background and training and a few other things, uh, you learn to be a master manipulator anywhere from four to six weeks and how to control those two funny people who keep looking at you and talking to you in funny words and things. And you just, and, and that's, once we become self-absorbed, then the next step is just trying to get everybody to indulge our every whim. And we all become you know, poster, uh, poster children for narcissism, and that is just bred into us. Unless we have good parents who begin to try to drive that out of us through discipline and training and hopefully eventually get some teaching from the Word. But when you have parents who are just as narcissistic as the children are, and then you have governments that want to, want to uh, promote narcissism among the citizens so that they will curry favor and keep their power and positions in politics, then you just really create a narcissistic society that's uh, bent on self-destruction, which is sort of where we are today. So we move from self-absorption and self-indulgence, and then we learn all kinds of sophisticated ways to justify all of our self-absorption, and so we can be very proud of it. And this just leads us to redefine reality on our terms instead of God's terms, and we can't see reality or truth for what it is because that is going to really run counter to our own uh, self-absorption and our primary motto of it's really all about me. And so in arrogance then we end up worshiping ourselves, worshiping the cre- creature. We're the ultimate determiner of truth and that's self-deification. This is what Paul ultimately refers to in Romans 1.21 uh, in describing the 
pre-flood culture, he says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so what happens is that rather than glorifying God, you see the contrast is they're not thankful. There's no gratitude. They become uh, self-absorbed and are redefining life uh, on their own terms. Another thing that is important in understanding grace and being grace-oriented is that in grace orientation, our focus is on gratitude and thankfulness for whatever we have that we understand we don't have an innate right to anything. It doesn't matter where we were born, who our parents were, what kind of education we had, what kind of IQ we have, what kind of background we have. We really, as creatures uh, created in a fallen world, we don't have an innate right or an inherent right to anything. And once we realize that, then we're just thankful for anything that we have. And we can then focus on serving God instead of serving our own narcissistic whims. In Romans 14, verse 6, Paul looks at it this way. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. The context of this is that there were some Christians who would observe days, some who wouldn't, and so they would get into arguments with one another. So you have he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. It is a matter of the individual and his relationship to the Lord. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks for what he has and what he eats. He who does not eat, that is somebody who decides they're going to be on a uh, particularly restricted diet just because they believe that enables them to serve the Lord better. It's not a legalistic thing. So he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and he gives God thanks. In other words, there are those who have and are thankful and those who don't have and are thankful. And they're able to operate within that environment of having or not having because their focus is on the Lord. Now, Paul talks about it personally in terms of his own experience in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and following. These verses are familiar to many of you. In Philippians 4, 6, he gives a command that we're to be anxious for nothing. See, anxiety and worry all comes out of a me-centered orientation. We're so consumed with what might happen in our experience that we just become absorbed by our circumstances and the details of our life. And when that happens, when that appears to be threatened, then we become anxious and we worry and we just can't put it in the Lord's hands. We can't follow the uh, mandate in First Peter 5, 7 to cast all our care upon him because he cares for us and we're too busy trying to take care of everything on our own. So Paul says, be anxious for nothing, rather in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, the S there is the third category in what I was talking about earlier, the acronym for prayer, ACTS, A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and the final was S for supplication, which is bringing your request to God. And in supplication, that really can be broken down into two other areas, uh, requests for others, which would be intercession, and requests for yourself, which would be under the category of petition. So you have adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, which includes intercession and petition. 
So Paul says that in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that gratitude to God should be something that wraps itself around our prayers, that we're thankful for whatever the Lord has given us. And the result of that is that there is peace, which means a stability in our life. It's the contrast to anxiety. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it's not something that we're going to arrive at through rationalism or through empiricism. It is something that is a byproduct of our spiritual life because we're focusing on God and his plan and his agenda and not on our plan and our agenda. So the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts. It it provides, a, as it were, a defense structure so that as circumstances change, we don't fall apart in worry and anxiety and panic and all of these other uh, mental attitude sins, but we're able to maintain a stability because circumstances are always going to change, and you can't do anything about them by worrying about them. As Jesus said in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, no matter how much you worry, you're not going to add an inch to your height, and you're not going to add another day to your life. It doesn't matter how much you worry. It doesn't do anything except give you uh, ulcers and stress and keep you awake at night and uh, produce chemicals that mean that you don't burn fat. I mean, burn burn fat in your diet, so you just get fat. All those things are just the result of sin. So the contrast is anxiety gives you peace and stability which surpasses all understanding and guards your hearts, that is the inner part of your soul, and your minds, your mentality with Christ Jesus. Now then Paul, starting in verse 10, relates this in terms of a personal example. And that personal example has to do with the fact that in his current status, in, um, he is a prisoner in Rome under house arrest, Uh, Yet he is restricted to some degree in his movements, and he has not always had all of the creature comforts uh, that he would like. He's not in prison, in the maritime prison. That doesn't come until uh, after he's released in his second imprisonment. This is his first imprisonment, which was somewhat more comfortable than what he experienced later. But during that time, the Philippian believers had sent him uh, some money, a financial gift, which had helped him in his uh, situation in Rome. So he says that I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but before they had lacked the opportunity to uh, serve the Lord by ministering to Paul. And he says, not that I speak in regard to need. So he's not like a modern psychologist who's focusing on a need-oriented framework for understanding human behavior. He's not not a Maslowian. He says, uh, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that in whatever state I'm in, to be content. In other words, he can have happiness and tranquility and peace whether he has or whether he doesn't have whether he's free or whether he's under house arrest, whether he's rich, whether he's poor, whether he has creaturely comforts or whether he doesn't have the creaturely comforts. You know, Paul's not walking around saying, look, what am I doing here in prison? I'm the Apostle Paul. What are you doing this to me for? 
That's not his mentality. It's often our mentality that, look, wait, wait, why am I going through this? So he's saying that it is he's learned that whatever state he's in to be content. He says in verse 12, I know how to be abased. That means he knows how to be poor. And I know how to abound. He knows how to handle prosperity. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on learning what it means to be hungry. Right after Christmas, this probably isn't a good time for that discussion. Uh, he's learned to be full, learned to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he concludes that by saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, the all things isn't something that's like out there that I can do whatever I want to do because Christ strengthens me. That's how a lot of people think about this verse because they learned it out of context. The all things in this verse refers to uh, abounding and suffering need, to be full or to be in, to be hungry. So he can handle any circumstance, whether he has or he doesn't have, whether he's in prosperity or whether he's in adversity, he can handle the situation and have stability and peace and tranquility in his soul because it, it, he is living for Christ and not for himself. Now, in terms of gratitude and understanding the significance of it, there are a couple of other passages that we need to relate to in terms of our focus. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, In everything give thanks. In every situation, be thankful to God that you have what you have. Now, sometimes you're going to look at things and go, this is not a good situation. It could be worse. It can always be worse. So be thankful that you have what you have because God is still in control and he has a purpose and a reason for you to be in that state and in that, those circumstances. We may not understand that until we get into eternity, but that's why it's a walk by faith and not by sight. So we are to give thanks for everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. I've always been amused for the last 30 or 40 years of my Christian life to hear people say, I just want to know what God's will is. Well, we know one thing. It's God's will for you to be thankful in everything. No, 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 no. I want to know who to get married to. I want to know whether to go to college. I want to know uh, what career choice to do, or whether to take this job or that. Well, just be thankful for all things. They can't master that, and we know that's the will of God. How can we think about other things? So in everything we're to give thanks for that is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, the next two verses are interesting because they are consequences of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Word of God in our life as a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the first of these verses is Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.16, we have the command, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And one of the results of letting the word of God richly dwell within us and to fill up our thinking is gratitude. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, there's another thing there. If you notice in Romans 1.8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. 
Now that is, that phrase, through Jesus Christ, is something we're going to see in these prayers because as Christians, we are commanded to pray in the name of Jesus and through Jesus because he is our high priest. And it is by virtue of our position in him that, and his intercession for us that we have access to God the Father. Uh, Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So giving thanks and gratitude is a barometer of our spiritual life and our uh, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Paul says much the same thing in Ephesians 5.20. Now Ephesians 5.18 is the verse you've heard many times where Paul says that we are, commands that we are to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Two verses later, we have a participle here, an imperatival participle that expresses the results of the filling of the Spirit. One of those results is giving thanks always for all things, not the good things, not some things, not the things you like, but all things to God the Father, and again, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, we are representatives of the body of Christ. So both of these verses, the Colossians 3.17 verse and Ephesians 5.20 verse, are verses that emphasize the fact that it is through Christ and in his name that we are to pray. Now, this was clearly taught by uh, the Lord in John chapter 14 through 16. Several times he emphasized this as he's giving new instructions to his disciples the night before he went to the cross. Up to that point or up to the point of his rejection by Israel, he had focused on uh, the message of the kingdom. And once the kingdom was postponed, then he began to shift, he began to teach in terms of what the situation would be in the intervening dispensation between the uh, day of Pentecost and the rapture. And so here in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, we have the uh, the, 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 the foundation of the Christian life that is being taught by Jesus to his disciples before he went to the cross the next day. In John 14, twice he talks about praying in his name. John 14, 14, he says, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I don't think that this necessarily means that you have to close every prayer by saying, in the name of Jesus. That is our custom, but that's not what this is saying. Doing something in the name of someone is doing something on the basis of what that person has done and in reference to that person as your authority. So if you're praying in the name of Jesus, what you're doing is you're praying on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that your sins have been paid for, that you are now right with God in fellowship, and because Jesus is our high priest, we have access to God so that we can uh, come boldly before the throne of grace, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with saying that we pray in the name of Jesus. That's a great reminder. But it's not a formula that if you don't say it, God's not going to listen to your prayer because that's not what, what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about now 
prayer is going to be done on the basis of who he is. Whenever you see this phrase, in the name of, it always has something to do with the character and the person, uh, character and the work of that particular uh, person. So when we believe in the name of Jesus, we're not taking the name Jesus as a label and saying, I believe in that name. We're believing in what that name represents in terms of his person and his work. So praying in the name of Jesus is praying on the basis of his person and work and our new relationship with God the Father. In John fourteen twenty six, we read, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, uh, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all things that I said to you. So here we have that same phrase, in my name, and the Father sends the Spirit, but the Spirit's not coming and saying, I'm here in the name of Jesus. He's not charismatic. He's coming and he's saying, and he isn't saying that, but he is coming on the basis, and he can come because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. In John fifteen sixteen, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This isn't talking about salvation. He's talking to the eleven now, because Judas is gone, and he's giving them part of their mission statement. Uh, and he chose them to be the apostles. It's not talking about choosing them to be saved. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. John's going to talk about this in a little different way in John, 1 John chapter 5 when he says, whoever uh, asks according to God's will, that his prayers will be answered. It's the same thing. It's not a blank check that whatever you ask in the name of Jesus is going to be answered. It is qualified by the fact that God still has sovereign rule over uh, prayers, and he sometimes will say no in terms of what we what we request. In John sixteen twenty three, in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So all of these prayer promises in the upper room discourse are all related to praying on the basis of who who Jesus Christ is and what he did uh, what he did on the cross. Now, the next thing, the next thing that is said in this verse is why Paul is thankful. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, that is, on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, through Jesus Christ for you all. And why, why is he thankful? That, the New uh, New King James translates it with the that. It should be translated with the because. It is, uh, that's the idea here in, in the Greek. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, the phrase spoken of is the Greek word kat angelo, which has the idea of a public proclamation or a public statement. And usually it's used in reference to public pronouncements related to what God has done. So what Paul's thankful of is that the faith, it's not just their saving faith. It's not talking about just the doctrine they believe. It's talking about 
what they believe and the application of it. It is their faith plus application, which is what uh, James was talking about when he talks about faith plus works. It's that they are learning the word and they are applying it. And it is their application, they're learning the word, their application of it, their, their desire to learn the word and to put it into practice that is being announced. This just isn't that they have a good reputation. This is being proclaimed. This is becoming well known throughout the whole, uh, the whole world. Now the whole world was sort of a, a way in which the Romans would talk about all of the civilized world, uh, that is the Roman Empire. They're not, doesn't mean North America, South America, you know, the South Seas. That's not included. The whole world would be the whole known world, which would be the Roman Empire. So their reputation is going to be proclaimed that these Roman believers have a tremendous spiritual life. They're learning the word and they're applying it, and it's becoming known throughout Rome. A question occurred to me when I was reading that. I thought, that means they're not just going to Bible class and taking notes and going home. And then the next night, getting their notebook out and their Bible and going back to Bible class and sitting in class and taking notes and then going back home and putting their notebook back on the shelf until the next night. They're out there in the community serving God and serving other believers and other people. And the fact that they are believers in Jesus Christ is affecting how they live, the decisions they make, what they're getting involved in in terms of their culture, and their witness, their public witness and proclamation of the gospel. It, and it, they're doing it with such a level of visible activity that their reputation has spread throughout all of the Roman Empire. And people saying, have you heard about those believers in Rome? They are really excited about learning the Word of God and putting it in practice in their lives, and they're not just going to Bible class. They're actually going out and serving the Lord in terms of all the areas in which they're involved uh, throughout their day-to-day activities so that people are looking at them and saying, what's different about those people? What are, what are they doing? We've never seen anything like this. It's having a physical impact, and it is recognized, and it is... It is seen and witnessed by the un, not only the unbelievers, but as well by, by other believers. So Paul is thankful that the Word of God is having such a transformative impact on this congregation. And then he goes on to explain it a little more in verse, what he is saying, in verse 9. And uh, it begins with a word in the Greek, the word gar, which indicates a continued explanation. And he says, for God is my witness. Now, what he's saying here is that you can't see me pray because you're in Rome and right now I'm in Corinth. You can't see my life. You don't know what I'm doing every day, but God does, and God is my witness. Now, today people say God is my witness all the time, and it's become a trivialized expression. But that wasn't, it wasn't a trivialized expression for Paul. It was a very serious expression that God in his omniscience and his omnipresence knows exactly what I do, that this is true, and I am praying for you all and expressing my gratitude for you all all of the time. And he says, my, for God is my witness whom I serve 
with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Now, let's understand what he's talking about here. When he uses the word serve there, this is the Greek word latruo, which has to do with the personal worship of the individual in his spiritual life. And the ultimate goal isn't just the accumulation of the knowledge of doctrine, but the, but the knowledge of doctrine is a means to an end, and that means to an end is serving God and serving man, or as Jesus expressed, or as expressed in the, in the Torah, in the Ten Commandments, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is serving God. So it involves the whole dimension of our relationship with God, as the driving, motivating force, but that what that results in is how we operate in the horizontal area of our relationships within our families, within our workplace, within the culture around us. And so Paul says, for God is my witness. He is the one whom I serve. And then he says, with my spirit, He's talking, we would express that a little differently. We would express that spiritually, uh, probably using an adverb there, whom I serve spiritually, that is in terms of my spiritual life. And he says, in relation to, uh, is the idea there, the gospel of his son. Now, we use the word gospel in a couple of different senses. We have a narrow sense of the gospel, which is what does a person need to believe in order to have eternal life, in order to avoid eternal condemnation. And a lot of times that's what we talk about. We say, well, did they get the gospel right? And the gospel, the right gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But there's a broader sense of the gospel, and that is all that that flows out of that, the good news related to the, that Jesus came not to just give life, but to give life abundantly. And so in this broader sense of the word gospel, it includes not only the gospel in terms of what do I need to do to avoid eternal, eternal condemnation, but how do I grow and mature as a believer? And Paul is referring to Romans as an expression and development of the gospel, and it includes justification only in the first uh, five chapters. Chapters 6 through 8 talks about sanctification. Chapters 9 to 11 talk about how God's justice is demonstrated in history through his relationship to Israel. And then chapters 12 and following talk about how the righteousness of God needs to be worked out in the life of every believer in all different areas all different areas of life. And so in this phrase, when he says, I serve with my spirit with reference to the gospel of his son, that's talking about the entire uh, dimension of biblical teaching on how to get saved and how to live once you are saved. And he says, uh, God is my witness that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. So he's talking about the fact that this is such a priority that on a regular basis, not just in the morning, but whenever he has an opportunity, he is praying for other people. Of course, see, he didn't have computers and cell phones and television and all these other things that distract us so much. Uh, so when you get rid of all of that uh, stuff in life, it's amazing how you can focus a little more on these, these particular areas in our spiritual life. We just have to be careful of the distractions. And then in verse 10, he goes on to say, making request that this is what's driving him. He is requesting God in terms of a personal petition, requesting God that somehow he would be allowed to come to Rome and to uh, teach in Rome. 
But at this point, God has not opened the door, made it, uh, made that opportunity available to Paul to come to Rome and to uh, minister there by teaching. This is what he goes on to describe in the next verse. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. The end result is that he is establishing them, building them up, getting them uh, firm uh, in the faith. But the idea of spiritual gift, where he uses uh, two words that are frequently used to refer to spiritual gifts, the word charisma indicating the gift part, the grace part, and pneumaticon, which is related to the spiritual part. But here it's in the singular, whereas when we find those words in the spiritual gift passages, they're in the plural. So here the idea is really more the idea of sharing uh, 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 his gift, which is, as an apostle, uh, pertaining to the spirit or the spiritual. That is, he wants to share with them a gift related to his spiritual gift of that which is related to the spiritual or their spiritual life. So actually in verse 11 and 12, he expresses three things that he wants to do. First of all, he wants to impart to them something uh, that builds them up spiritually uh, using his spiritual gift. The second thing that he wants to do is to be mutually encouraged. Now, that's something I taught when we were looking at uh, in, in Hebrews, that one of the things that is very important in the, in the body of Christ is the mutual ministry, the one another's. We're to pray for one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to just come together and frequently assemble that we can encourage one another. It is an encouragement to the pastor when people show up and are sitting in front of him. I don't know how many people are out there watching live streaming, and it could be a large number or a small number, but when you're actually here in front of me, it's encouraging. It's encouraging to me, but it's also encouraging to you. You know what it's like. You come to Bible class, you've been to Bible studies, and there's ten people, and you, somehow you try to be spiritually mature, and it really doesn't matter that there's only ten people there. But if you come and there's 150 people there, Wow, this is great. Look at all these people that are here. And it lifts you up. So there is a mutual encouragement just to the presence of seeing other believers who are positive to the word and putting it into practice. And that's what Paul says here, that I may come and we may be, we can encourage one another by sharing, talking about, understanding and teaching the mutual faith or the faith that we, that we share and that this is something that has mutual benefit. So the first reason he wants to come is to teach them things related to the spiritual life. The second thing is to be encouraged, to encourage one another, that mutual encouragement with one another's uh, faith. And then the third thing, which is goes into the next verse, is that he can have some fruit among them also, that is, see some production as a result of his teaching among the congregation in Rome, just as he's seen among the other uh, Gentile congregations as well. So those are three of the reasons that he wants to go, uh, come to Rome and to teach and to see them, uh, see them grow. 
Now we'll stop here and we'll come back next time to wrap up this first part of the salutation when I get back from Kiev and then we'll get, and we'll get into at that time the next, uh, the verses 16 and 17, the conclusion of the introduction which gives us an orientation to the whole theme and purpose of Romans which has to do with the just shall live by faith and this is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. So, it's very important to get into those verses because it's, uh, number one, there's some controversy over how to understand or translate those, but it's also important to understand that this is the foundation for understanding uh, everything else that's in Romans. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to study your word, to be encouraged by what we learn about the Apostle Paul and his own spiritual life, his focus upon you, and that we can come to uh, learn to live our life uh, more consistently on the basis of grace orientation and humility and not on the basis of focusing just on our own uh, tiny little world and being self-absorbed and and, uh, narcissistic in our orientation, but that we may understand more fully what it means to be saved, to serve you, and to put our focus on your plan and your purpose and not our plan and our purpose. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.